0: Well it's great to be with you here and it's always a great joy to come and share the word of the Lord with you here today and today is no exception so we're excited to be able to share with you something of what the Lord has laid upon my heart. Certainly round about following Christmas we began to look at the whole theme of the cross of Christ. We looked at it from a number of different perspectives but as we understand something of the wider ministry of Christ I think it's fair to say that his ministry is divided up into five terms, seasons, periods. Call them what you will, but the ministry of Jesus is more than just what we read of in the Gospels. Even though that is central and pivotal and foundational, there's so much more that the Bible tells us about the ministry of Jesus. You could say, well... The first aspect of the ministry of Christ was one of prediction prophecy, where we have in the Old Testament the word of the Lord concerning the coming of Messiah, and all of that in how Israel was prepared for the word of the Lord to come to pass, and various signs and symbols and words from the Lord were given at many times and in various ways concerning the Messiah. And then in the fullness of time, we then have incarnation. So we move from prediction to incarnation, Where in the Gospels the Word of God became flesh. And we read of his ministry, obviously, in the New Testament there. But then there's that season of what you could call exaltation, which involves his death and resurrection and ascension. Over a period of 40 days, we know the Gospels talk about this. Then we move to another period, which is glorification, which is his present day ministry. And then ultimately, the final instalment could be described as consummation. The book of Revelation talks about how there's going to be a great wedding supper. The wedding supper of the Lamb. And yet that's still a future hope for us. And the Bible talks about this. So therefore, what I wanted to share with you here today is something about the significance of the present work of God in Christ. In other words... After Jesus ascended to heaven, what did he do? Was he redundant? Did he just simply sort of take a holiday? Or was there something more that the Father had? Well, the Bible is very clear that he ever lives to make intercession for us. That Jesus is not redundant in heaven here today. He's not sitting around waiting for the tap on the shoulder from the Father to say, right, now is the time to go back to planet Earth. But rather, he's working. But he's resting. And I just wanted to look at something of the significance of this. And the three words that I wanted to use to help describe the present day ministry of Jesus are the words, sit, walk, and stand. Now you probably think, how does that fit into what the Bible says? Well, we'll find here this morning that it fits in very nicely. As we understand the threefold ministry of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Now, there is the dimension of his ministry that is overarching, which is to do with justice as Jesus being the judge. And that is interwoven in all of these ministries, in different ways and at different times. But the three main ministries that Jesus not only occupied, but still fulfills, is prophet, priest, and king. Today, so yesterday, when we were looking at the coronation, those amazing pictures from Westminster Abbey, and that sort of very sacred moment where the king was anointed. Okay, it was screened off for privacy purposes, obviously, but there was something very sacred about that. We know it's very ceremonial, but there's something of the word of the Lord in terms of our greater king. Who he himself was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And in that anointing, there was the commission to serve, the power to rule, the mandate to govern. So for Jesus himself, being anointed was the defining moment of his ministry, as indeed it was and is in an earthly sense for King Giles III. But there's something greater than just the ceremonial, and that's the reality of who Christ is. What we saw yesterday was the ceremonial worked out in, yes, a religious context, but I just pray that there might be more than just a point of interest as people observe that, that there might be a stirring in people's hearts for the one true King, whose name is Jesus. So as we just look at the word of the Lord, let's look at the first word that I wanted to touch upon here this morning, and it's the word sit. Now, how does this capture our imagination here today? Well, there's a number of scriptures I wanted to read. The first one being in Hebrews 1 and verse 3, where it says of Christ being God's final word, too, is how in these last days God speaks to us by his Son. It is said of him that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Let's move on to another scripture in Hebrews 10, reading from verse 11 onwards, where it says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered For all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. It's clear to me that these scriptures talk about the fact that Christ is now seated. Now, what does that imply? Well, in the context of Hebrews 10, quite interestingly, it says that those priests who served under the Old Covenant with the Tabernacle of Moses or the Temple of Solomon, the Bible says of them that they stood daily in that service. So if you know anything about the Tabernacle of Moses, it was a very basic structure. There was the outer court where there was the altar upon which the sacrifice was offered. And then you go to another room with a curtain, which was called the Holy Place, through that curtain... There were a number of articles of worship, one of them being the table of showbread, an altar of incense, a jar of manna. And that stood before the second curtain through which you used to go to in order to go into the holiest of all, which contained the Ark of the Covenant. Very simple and yet very, very significant. What is interesting, and it's interesting because of its absence, is that there were no seats for the priest to sit on. There wasn't a couch, there wasn't a three-piece suite. Why was that? Well, the priest had to be on his feet, ministering daily, serving, atonement, sacrifice. The Bible says of these priests that they stood daily in that service because as long as the ministry remained unfulfilled and thus those sacrifices were but shadows and types, The priests had to be on their feet. The only high priest who was able to sit down was the one who finished the work of God. And his name is Jesus. The Bible says of him that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down as a sign of the fact that the work of the Lord was accomplished. But interestingly enough, there's another scripture that talks about how Jesus was seen as the one who sat down. And it is found in Luke 4, where we have Jesus' first sermon that he preached. The Bible says he took the scroll, didn't he, from the hand of the attendant. He unrolled it, found the place where it was written, Isaiah 61. After he had written and read the scriptures, he then sort of rolled it up, gave it back to the attendant. And then the Bible says... And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Okay? And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, it's easy to overlook the significance of this. Because following the fact that the eyes of the congregation were fixed upon Jesus, what did Jesus do? He said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, interestingly enough, when rabbis wanted to make... A declaration stating a fact, a revelation of truth, they wouldn't stand up to do it, they would sit down. So the fact that Jesus sat down and then declared, This day, this word is fulfilled in your hearing, in itself just magnifies the significance of what was taking place. We tend to stand up when we preach in our modern sort of post Reformation church structure. But actually, the rabbis used to sit down and then declare. So Jesus is seated, seated at the right hand of the Father, speaking of the finished work of God. These priests under the Old Testament, they had to stand up. And as long as they were standing, it would denote the fact that the work had yet to be completed. And it was only Jesus who would come as our great high priest. As it says here, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So what is Jesus doing today? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is seated above all principality and power, awaiting for that moment when all of his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. So that's what we are in. That is the season that we find ourselves in today. It is this season of anticipation. That's the word, anticipation. Completion, yet anticipation for that time when the Lord will return. So he is seated, he is seated as the prophet of God upon the throne of God. The second word is the word walk. Now I'll have to read these scriptures to you. And this is not so much Jesus the prophet, but it is Jesus the priest. In Revelation 2 and verse 1, it says, In the first letter to the first church, which was in Ephesus, it is said to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So on the one hand, we're told that Jesus is seated and has sat down, but then on the other hand, John had this vision of the Lord himself walking amongst the candlesticks. So, why is that? What ministry was it that required the high priest or the priests themselves to walk amongst the candlesticks? Well, again, we are taken back to the tabernacle or the temple where the menorah, the seven branch candlestick, was placed there in the holy place. It was lit, fueled by oil, and never went out. So, one of the ministries of the high priest or the priests themselves was to ensure that the wicks were trimmed, that the flames didn't burn out, that the light of God's presence continually shone there in the outer court. So what is Jesus doing? Well, the picture of the candlestick in Revelation spoke of the seven churches. So the candlestick had seven branches, each typified Each of the seven churches mentioned in Revelation 2 to 3, of which Ephesus was the first one mentioned and Laodicea was the seventh one mentioned. So across the span of seven churches, the word of the Lord came in different ways to different churches to highlight strengths, weaknesses, blessings, battles, and all of this and more. But here we have Jesus walking amongst the candlesticks. So what was the high priest's ministry? Well, to ensure that the candlestick Never went out. That the wicks were trimmed. So, what is the work of the spirit? Well, that's typified by the oil, isn't it? But the thing is, is that Jesus is walking amongst us, isn't he? Even though he is seated at the right hand of the Father, he's actually walking amongst us. What is he doing in your life? Well, ensuring that there's oil, his Holy Spirit, pouring out upon you grace and truth, but also trimming the wick. Why do you trim the wick? To ensure that the flame doesn't go out. It's called pruning, isn't it? It's called God's work of conviction and judgment. And here we have Jesus walking amongst the candlesticks. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, in other words, that's the power of Christ... But then also the one who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands, which talks about the presence of Christ. And those are the two things that we need to understand. When God's power is amongst us, then his presence is here. No power, no presence. Jesus is amongst us, isn't he? By his Holy Spirit. What is he doing? He's walking. He's walking amongst us. To trim the wicks of our lives in order that the flame of faith might burn. And continue to burn without hindrance. Because unless the wick is trimmed, it'll go out and no more light will be shone. And I feel that the Lord will just remind us here today that he's amongst us, isn't he? He's walking here in our midst. As our great high priest, Revelation talks about this. So Jesus is seated, he's also walking, and then thirdly, he is standing. And this very much paints the picture of Jesus, our great and glorious King. In Revelation 5 and verse 6, it says this, And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So we move from the word of the Lord to the churches on earth. We move back to heaven. And John saw this vision of the glorious presence of God. And within this picture that he saw, this wonderful vision, there was the revelation of the Lamb of God. But it is said of him that he was depicted as one who was standing in the midst of the throne, looking as if it had been slain. So this picture of the standing lamb, what does that speak of? Well, whenever you find Jesus standing, something is going to happen And the book of Revelation is no exception, because what we find is that the Lamb of God, speaking of Christ himself, then goes and receives the scroll from the hand of him who sits upon the throne, and this scroll has got seven seals. The only person worthy enough, in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, to open the scroll and to break the seals, was Jesus John understood this, he wept and he wept because no one was found until the elder tapped him on the shoulder and said, look, cheer up, there is someone who can actually open the seven seals and he's worthy enough to do so. So the lamb receives this scroll and then starts to break each seal. As the word of the Lord is accomplished in heaven, so the power and the impact of that word is seen on earth. So whenever Jesus is standing up, it always denotes something of anticipation, a readiness, a sense of eagerness that he's going to move. That's why he's walking, walking and standing are very much similar exercises, aren't they? And what we know from the Lord here today is that he's ready. He's is seated enthroned, coronated. But there's an anticipation, isn't there, in our hearts that should rise up. Because this anticipation was seen in the letter given to the last of the seven churches, Laodicea, where it says in chapter 3 and verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. What is Jesus doing? What is he saying to the church? Well, I'm standing at the door. Now, you could say this is the door of the church. Now, sometimes evangelistically speaking, it's used as a word to the unbeliever. Now, I think it works both ways. But essentially, to lay aside, decide, it was the church to whom the word of the Lord was given. It was the heart of the church that Jesus was knocking on. That was the door that Jesus wanted to address. But it says here, if anyone hears my voice. Now that's not just church folk, that's anyone. That Jesus is present, but he's standing and his heart is to reach out and to reach in. He wants to be the Lord of our hearts. To come in, not simply to have a conversation, but to be heard, to be listened. To come in and to have And to eat a meal with him. That is the heart of the Lord. He wants communion. He doesn't want Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings and that's it. The Lord himself wants communion. He wants a living, lasting and loving relationship with all of us. And that's the language that John records for our benefit I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. If anyone opens the door. But this was a church being spoken to. How many churches have closed their doors to the Lord? They come in, they go through their religious circles, they do their religious things, taking no hint or any sense of conviction that the Lord is not present. What the Lord wants to do amongst us is that he wants to come and make his habitation here in our midst. Amen? Amen. So this is the word of the Lord. It's interesting again in Acts 7 where we hear and read of Stephen's final speech before he was martyred. And it is said that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. How would you like to pray a prayer that gets Jesus on his feet? You know, Jesus is acknowledging and welcoming in readiness and eagerness to receive Stephen into his presence. Hallelujah. So what about the church? Jesus is our great high priest Jesus is the prophet of prophets. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is reigning and ruling, isn't he? But what about you and me here today? Well, as he is, so are we in this world, it says in John's first epistle. So what is true of Christ then becomes true of us. The church of Christ itself Ephesians 2 and verse 4 to 6 says this. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Christ is seated, finished work. We are seated, because we're in Christ. And he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. Christ has finished the work and God is working in us. And what he begins, he always finishes. And he only ever starts that which is already ordained to complete. So here we have the word of the Lord. That we are seated in heavenly places with him. Hallelujah. Now we need to live in this. This is more than just theological kind of Points of interest, this is lifestyle issues that Paul is talking about in how we are to conduct ourselves. So we are seated in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. What about to walk? Well, Ephesians 4 and verse 1 says this. I therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So we're called to walk, we're seated, but like Christ as well, we're a people on the move, aren't we? And Paul says that we are called to walk worthy of the calling wherewith we have been called. In the opening three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has gone to great lengths to talk about all of our riches in Christ and the blessings that God has given us and our union with Christ and the sealing of the Spirit and how God has worked but then in the latter part of the book, in chapters 4 to 6, he moves from, well, we are blessed, to how are we to live in the light of our blessings? All of our responsibilities that we carry flow out of the riches that we have been given. And he says, we are called to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Are we walking today? Are we a people on the move? Or are we stuck in a rut? Are we going around in circles or are we making progress? Well, the answer is very clear. If our eyes are on the Lord, we keep our eyes fixed upon him, then we are called to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. So we sit, we walk, and then Paul rounds off with the challenge to stand in Ephesians 6, where it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind. Put on the full armour of God that you may be able to stand Against the schemes of the devil. He says, put on the full armor." It doesn't say take it off. He says, put it on. When? Daily. Live with it on. So that when that evil day comes, which it will, you are able to stand against the schemes or the wiles of the enemy. One of the biggest mistakes that we make in life is that we forget to put on the armour. We forget to be clothed with the Lord. We forget what we have been given, these spiritual weapons, which are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We are called to be a people who stand in the Lord and in his mighty power. We're not called to fight the devil on our own, in our own strength. We are only called to fight in the context of Christ himself. Because it's his armour, not ours. It is the armour of light that God has given to us. And we need to see this. We are to be strong in the Lord. And in the power of his might. Or in the strength of his might. It's not your strength. Because you have none. It's not your energy. Because that's gone. You have no sense of personal Empowerment flowing out of your own heart and mind. It's all that Christ has put within you. It is he that we are called to serve. Put on the whole armour of God. And then it talks about it, doesn't it? There's a whole list of things from the helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, shield of faith, so on and so on. There's so much in there. And then the whole thing is wrapped up in prayer. The prayer becomes the overarching point of connection between every single aspect of that armour. But we are called to stand, not to flee, but to stand. And that's what God's called us all to do here today, to sit and to know that we are seated in Christ, to walk and to keep moving, but also to stand in the victory and in the power of almighty God. Amen. Amen. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We just pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would touch hearts and minds. Lord, in all that we do, throughout the week that we are to live, Lord, may everything be done, be done to your glory and power. Amen.